Thank you, team. We've got more people. Come on in, come on in. We might need to make a second roll tonight. Usually we try and fit everybody in one circle, but might not be practical. There's one more over here, Francie. Okay. So hopefully you're all feeling settled. So I think most of you have been to at least one of our previous Thursday sessions this year. And so you are aware that we've been focusing on this theme of freedom. What supports freedom? What gets in the way? And somehow in my last couple of talks on this theme, I ended up exploring the practice of death contemplation. <laughs> because it can be such a powerful practice to cut through delusion. The kind of delusion that keeps us caught in complacency, denial, willful ignorance, which of course are the opposite of the freedom that all of these practices are moving us towards. Now, although the practice of death contemplation is a huge topic, we could easily spend many more sessions diving into it. I'd like to actually move on a little bit tonight and save that topic for another time, maybe even a whole separate course. So tonight, I'd like to move from death to gladness. <laughs> maybe it seems like a big leap. Maybe some of you are getting a bit of whiplash. And perhaps the connection is a little counterintuitive. But as we were exploring the other day, for many people, actually coming closer to the truth of their own mortality can help to awaken a sense of deep gratitude. Gratitude just for the reality of being alive, for a start, but also for the everyday aspects of our life. But so often we just take them for granted. We don't recognize them as experiences that we can appreciate unless or until they're no longer available to us. So I'd like to start with just one example of that from that same Guardian article that I mentioned a few weeks ago. You may have seen it. The article was uh, called Advice from 30 People Who Really Started Living When They Found Out They Were Dying. So right there is a sense, a clue in the title. And this little piece was called Find Gratitude. And it was a contribution from a woman who was 50 years old, uh, living in Canada. She developed breast cancer. She had a mastectomy, but seven years later, it spread to her spine and became incurable. And she said, my husband and I had plans for when our kids were grown. 
We'd always said we'd be the most fit grandparents, playing with our grandkids on the ground. But even if I'm alive, I won't be able to be that grandparent, because I'm just not capable of doing that stuff now. Find the gratitude for what you have, because it can always and will always get worse. Be grateful for all the things that are going your way right now. Maybe we hear that and we think, yeah, that makes sense. But it often comes with this background thought, but I don't have cancer right now. Maybe some of you do. But for most of us, yep, well, I'm not actively dying yet. I'll, I'll get back to that later. And that's part of the challenge, right, with these contemplations. There's this part of us that, oh, I'll just put that off until I really need to or really have to. But we don't know when that might come. It might not be cancer that kills us. We might not have a kind of the relative luxury of having time. It might be something more sudden. And we had a powerful reminder of how unexpected that can be with the passing of the Fessel Collins on Wednesday. I don't know about for you, but that was quite a shock, a pretty sad example. And even more sad in a way that he died taking part in a fundraising run for his favorite charity. And maybe some of you here knew him, know of him. He was only 49, and it was really moving reading all the different tributes to him from all different political spectrums. He seems to have been pretty universally appreciated. And someone, James Shaw, said, He conducted himself quietly and gracefully and full of empathy. He was a good man. He led a life full of love. What a beautiful thing to be able to say. And so you might just take a moment to let that settle in. How might we live a life so that at the end people could say we lived a life full of love? I was actually trying not to focus too much on death this evening, but (laughs) this happened to come, come up. But what I do want to do is spend more time on the positive benefits that Maranasati or death contemplation can bring. So remembering what the woman with terminal breast cancer said, find the gratitude for what you have now, because it can always and will always get worse. Be grateful for what's going your way right now. And to be honest, I have a minor quibble with what she says about things always getting worse. (laughs) It's true in terms of aging, of health, but in relation to the Buddha's teaching. The point of them is improvement, to improve how we're living right now, as well as how we die. And both of those are aspects of this theme of freedom that we're focusing on. And I think usually we think of life and death as being in opposition to each other, in conflict with each other. And there can be almost a superstition that if I think too much about death, it will negate life. But as all of these practices show, having some awareness of impermanence actually brings us more fully to life. 
So I keep coming back to that key quote about the heedless are as if already dead. The unmindful are as if already dead. And it's actually mindfulness of impermanence, of change, of instability, that stops us from taking things for granted and stops us from just sleepwalking our way through life. And actually psychologists have recognized there is this tendency in the brain to go on autopilot when things get smooth and steady and stable. And they refer to this process as habituation. Some of you may know that term, but it refers to the brain's tendency to respond less and less to things that are constant, to things that don't change as much. And as habituation happens with both pleasant and unpleasant experiences. So in a recent article, it was described like this. As we get used to the pleasant aspects of our life, both the big ones, like a loving spouse, a comfortable home, a good job, and the small ones, a great view, a tasty meal, we notice and appreciate them less and less. So in other words, we pretty quickly adapt to what we have and it becomes the norm and then we become complacent and we take it for granted. And this same psychology article found that an antidote to this tendency is actually to break up the experience. So according to the research, if we interrupt the pleasant experiences and then come back to them, it helps us to appreciate them even more. So, for example, people who are given massages with breaks in between were found to have enjoyed the massage more than those who weren't interrupted at all. Anything that's wonderful will become at least a bit less wonderful over time. So why not take a break and enjoy it all over again? And I felt like that was uh, relevant for our death contemplation because I think it's so powerful. Contemplating our death, in a way, gives us that break or that interruption out of our habitual complacency. And it helps us to appreciate with new eyes, with new ears, actually with all of our senses, what we actually have while we have it. So again, as the woman with breast cancer said, be grateful for all the things that are going your way right now. And again, maybe that sounds on some level obvious or straightforward. But I think for many people, certainly for me, it's not always that easy to open to what's going well. Have you noticed that? In addition to that habituation that I just mentioned, there are so many other conditions that can get in the way of feeling appreciation. There's our own individual personality, family conditioning. There's broader societal conditioning. And I've certainly noticed how pervasive it is for people to have a deep sense of unworthiness, a sense that they don't actually deserve to be happy. And in many ways, um, people often are unconsciously punishing themselves by avoiding anything that's pleasant even maybe particularly in so-called spiritual circles, there's a sense that if it's pleasant or enjoyable, then it can't be spiritual. 
Some people are afraid to open to gladness because they know it will change. What's the point of feeling that? It's just going to go away and then I'm going to feel even more bereft than I did before. And for yet other people, perhaps particularly in these current times where there's just so much misery around the world, feeling glad can bring up almost a kind of guilt out of a misplaced sense of solidarity that I should be suffering like everyone else. Who am I to feel happiness when there's war and famine and on and on? So coming back to this theme of freedom, the invitation to feel gratitude can often reveal where and how we're not free, where and how we're blocked or stuck in old habitual patterns. Often different strategies for staying safe in a perverse kind of way. So not always so easy to feel this appreciation and gladness. And I am, as always, grateful to the Buddha's teaching. Because he didn't, for example, just say, be kind, be compassionate, be appreciative, have more equanimity. He gave us actual training to help us cultivate those qualities. So you may have recognized that I just named the four Brahma-Vihara qualities of metta or kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And I think probably most of you are familiar with at least the first of these, which is kindness. So for the rest of our time here, what I wanted to do was focus on the third one, which is mudita, or appreciative joy. Because it's this one that really supports the heart and mind to open to deep gratitude and gladness. And in turn, those resources help us to relate more skillfully to the death contemplation. So as I think most of you know, Mudita, appreciative joy, is what arises naturally when a basic level of kindness or goodwill turns towards what's going well. So we can think of mudita as an, as an attitude of gratitude. Gratitude, appreciation, or simple gladness. And in the way these teachings have evolved, Mudita is taught similar to how we do metta, by silently reciting phrases that connect with the quality of appreciation. And then we offer those phrases to a benefactor, to a good friend, to a neutral person, to a difficult person, and to all beings everywhere. That's the traditional way of offering it. And perhaps... For some people, it might sound a little bit naive or maybe even self-indulgent to be tuning in to what's going well. Isn't that a bit Pollyanna-ish, sometimes people say? I think all of us are acutely aware of the suffering that's present right now in our own lives, in the lives of millions of people around the world. But maybe even because of that intensity of suffering, We need this flexibility of heart and mind, a flexibility that can take in the whole spectrum of our experience and not just focus or even fixate on the difficulties. 
So again, as many of you know, the mind has this inbuilt negativity bias, and it tends to skew towards putting much more attention on what's painful, difficult, stressful, and so on. And because the attention is over here, it's not so connected to what's easeful, nourishing, restorative, and so on. So it is easier said than done to keep bringing the awareness out of that inherent negativity bias. But again, as we all know, I think from our own experience, staying glued to the news cycle for hours every day generally doesn't have a great effect on our emotional well-being. So it can be helpful instead to consciously open up to what's going well, to include our own good qualities, our strength, our own good fortune, and wherever we can, the positive things that are happening around the world right now. In the Buddha's teachings, it's crucially important to know where and how we're putting our attention because that shapes our minds, our outlooks, how we see the world. I'm guessing many of you know someone who is a little stuck in a negative worldview, somehow just their temperament, the half glass, the glass half full type. And if you observe people who are stuck in that more negative temperament, quite often it's self-reinforcing. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) That you can be alongside somebody who has a very pessimistic outlook and more negative things seem to happen to them, even even though you're right there alongside them. There's something about that worldview that can be self-fulfilling. But it's not as simplistic as just saying, okay, let's all look on the bright side and everything will be okay. There's no wisdom in that. Wisdom sees the whole scope, the full range, the full spectrum of life, and doesn't get so caught in picking and choosing and pushing away and slivering down into small slices in a misguided attempt to get more certainty and security. So we really want to notice what are the stories that we're telling ourselves about our lives, about the world, about who we are within all of it. As the Buddha said, we are what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. He also said what we frequently think about and ponder upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. So he's pointing to the enormous power of our thoughts to create narratives. And those narratives then shape our lives, for better or for worse. And perhaps especially in these current times where human cruelty and ignorance can feel more intense than ever, it might be easy to fall into hopelessness or apathy and seeing only the worst aspects of what our species are capable of doing to each other. And it can strengthen the narrative that Human beings are doomed. To confess, I've had that thought once or twice recently. So in my own practice, I've consciously been looking for stories that can balance that out, that can orient the heart and mind in a more beneficial direction. 
And I found this quote uh, a couple of years ago that to me really underscores the importance of paying attention to our inner stories. So it says, knowing no stories is ignorance. Knowing many stories is wisdom. Knowing one story is death. Knowing one story is death. So I've been training myself to notice when I'm locked into this situation only appears to be this one particular way. Wisdom might ask, okay, what else might be true right now? And even in the most dire situation, if we get locked into that one story, it solidifies. But if we can ask, is there anything else going on right now? Sometimes we can find that mythical silver lining. We can find something in that situation we can appreciate. Maybe even some flickers of mudita that can sustain us, give us hope to continue. So a while back I read some reflections by Rebecca Solnit. Some of you know her. She's an American writer, journalist, and campaigner for social justice and environmental rights. And apparently she's been interested in disasters for many years. <laughs> Since the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, and then particularly Hurricane Katrina in 2005, she wrote a whole book about that. And what she found in so many of these horrendous, disastrous situations was that when all the ordinary divides and patterns are shattered, people step up to become their brother's keeper. And that purposefulness and connectedness brings joy, even in the midst of the death, the chaos, the fear, and the loss. So she acknowledges, yes, in times of disaster, people fall apart. But there can also be this, what she calls, falling together, that we don't acknowledge so much. We tend not to pay nearly as much attention to this falling together. In other words, to all the strengths that get catalyzed when people do come together to support each other in times of crisis. So coming back to our theme of gratitude and gladness, we're much more likely to be able to support each other to fall together if we have this baseline of resilience, the resilience that comes from being able to open to the whole spectrum of our experience, from misery to bliss and everything in between. So in that same interview, Rebecca Solnit makes an interesting point about the difference between joy and happiness and how in many ways, she says, joy feels like a more spiritually inspiring quality than happiness. She says, joy is such an interesting term. Joy is such an interesting term because we hear constantly about happiness. Are you happy? Emotions are mutable, and this notion that happiness should be a steady state of mind actually seems designed to make people miserable. Joy is so much more interesting because we're much more aware that it's fleeting. It's like the light, it's like the light at sunrise or the lightning. 
it's epiphanies and moments and raptures, and it's not supposed to be a steady state. And that's okay. She says, I think it's a word that comes a lot more in spiritual life than happiness. That millstone happiness. That millstone of happiness. I think she's making a good point there, that chasing after some illusory, steady state of permanent happiness often just makes us more miserable. Because in Buddhist terms, it's out of alignment with the truth of change, of inconstancy, of impermanence. And if we're going for happiness out there, we're not putting our time and energy into inner cultivation, which is a much more dependable source of contentment. So it's interesting to me that happiness actually isn't one of the four Brahmavihara, but gladness, gratitude, joy, mudita is. And in the later Buddhist tradition, this quality of gladness developed to have an altruistic dimension to it. And it became about cultivating joy in relation to other people's happiness, other people's success, good fortune. But in my own experience, it works both ways. If we don't allow ourselves to feel any joy, then obviously it's going to be harder to feel joy for other people's joy. So we can think of it as an act of generosity, actually, to train ourselves to connect with our own delight so that we can then offer that delight to other people too. And actually, joy is contagious. Have any of you noticed that? There's a Swedish proverb that says, shared joy is a double joy. Shared sorrow is a halved sorrow. So keeping in mind this contagion of joy, it can be an antidote to that common tendency to feel that it's somehow inappropriate or self-indulgent to feel anything positive because so many people are suffering. But if we look at it in another way, how is it helping the net suffering in the world to avoid any joy that might actually be available to us. So I had a, a direct experience of this contagion of joy recently. It was during the study retreat with Willard and Elizabeth. Was it two weeks ago? Many of you are on that. So during that retreat, Elizabeth and I went for a walk in the park, and it just so happened there was one of those sudden downpours of rain. So we took shelter under a tree and waited for it to pass. And, you know, we could have thought of it as being inconvenient or our walk's been interrupted and we're going to get wet. But there happened to be a couple with their little boy who like, is two or maybe three years old and their dog who also got caught in the rain. And at first they were sheltering under the tree, but then the little boy just ran out into the rain and started squealing with delight. And he was running around with his face up in the air and the rain was falling in his open mouth and his hands were flapping around. And then the dog got involved and the dog was running around. <laughs> the parents were trying to bring him back in, but they quickly realized that was a waste of time. So we stood under the tree and we watched this kid just with this massive infusion of delight. And Elizabeth and I and the parents, we were just watching and 
sharing in this kid's huge delight with experiencing that rainstorm. That's a pretty simple, innocent kind of gladness and joy. But sometimes in the bigger picture of our lives, that joy can bring up unease if we get caught in comparing. So I was talking to a friend of mine in the U.S. who was um, exploring this mudita practice. And she was telling me that, yes, she feels hugely fortunate. She has a roof over her head. She lives in a safe community. She has enough healthy food to eat. She has a partner for shared financial support. And she has pretty good health right now. There's a lot going well for her. And as she touched all that, she felt the guilt of her own privileged position. And maybe that's true for some of you here. Generally speaking, most of us are probably not in extreme difficulties right now. But it would be a shame to squander what we do have by feeling guilty about it. So instead, we might find ways, how can we share this good fortune? Not necessarily by giving everything away to charity, but just having that sense of abundance. And how might we share our time, or our energy, or our material goods, our money, or these qualities of gladness and joy when they are available? So the joy of mudita can become a source of inspiration and connection rather than dragging us down into guilt or unworthiness. And I'm sure all of you here are already doing that to perhaps more than you might even recognize just through how you engage with your families and your neighborhoods and your workplaces and your communities. And each of these actions contributes to the whole. So I'd like to close with a slightly longer quote from Rebecca Solnit. She's exploring what supports hope and what gets in the way. And in a nutshell, it's coming to terms with the truth of impermanence and uncertainty, which again circles back to our contemplation of death. So she says, one of the things I'm really interested in is what are the stories we tell and what are their consequences? And are there other ways of telling (coughs) other stories that don't get told? Hopefulness is really, for me, not optimism. It's not that everything's going to be fine and we can just sit back. That's too much actually like pessimism, which is also everything's going to suck and we can just sit back. Hope, for me, is means more like a Buddhist sense of uncertainty, of coming to terms with the fact that we don't know what will happen and that there's room for us to intervene. We have to let go of certainty, the certainty that people seem to love more than hope. People in this culture love certainty so much, even more than they love hope, which is why they often seize on these really kind of bitter, despondent narratives, and they tell themselves they know exactly what's going to happen. And she says, that seems so tragic to me. I want people to tell more complex stories and to acknowledge that sometimes we win. 
And it's the unpredictability of our lives and that ground for hope I talk about. We don't know what forces are at work, who or what is going to appear. Hope is tough. It's tougher to be uncertain than to be certain. It's tougher to take chances than to be safe. Hope is often seen as weakness, but it takes strength to enter into that vulnerability of being open to the possibilities. And I'm interested in what gives people that strength. What stories, what questions, what memories, what conversations give people that strength? So those are good questions. I think that's a good place to stop for now. And then maybe we come back after the break, we can explore together what gives us strength to hope. And I would add, what role might mudita, appreciative joy, play in all of this? Okay, so I'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.